Welcome back to SMSF Mates Daily Podcast. This is our general advice warning that we are required to warn you that any advice has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial situations or needs and because of that you should, before acting on the advice, consider the appropriateness of the advice having regard to your own objectives, financial services and needs and where the advice relates to the acquisition or possible acquisition of a financial product, you should obtain a product disclosure statement, PDS, relating to the product and consider the PDS before making any decision about whether to acquire the product. Now let's get into it. Welcome back to SMSF Mates Podcast. I am in the studio today with... Ashwood. Gareth. David. Thanks for coming in, guys. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Um, on the phone today, uh, we've got a very special guest. Arjun, you're from Investor Kit, and uh, your business, from what I read online, your property uh, buyer's agency is that correct yeah so we're a real estate research business and property buyers agency and um, we're very uh, data driven and that's kind of what gives us the competitive advantage excellent can you give us a bit of a, a rundown of your business Arjun and how you sort of see you know the property market at, at the moment yeah so a bit of a rundown on us is um, you know we'll, we'll buy properties for clients uh, across sort of residential and commercial property um, we're very much data-driven, so it means that we go where the numbers go rather than saying, hey, this is our patch and this is our area. We'll take our clients across the country to find the right investments and you know, help them diversify across markets where we can reduce opportunity cost. And uh, when it comes to you know our team and the engine room behind it all, we've got various divisions from client success, acquisitions, research, commercial, buyer's agency, and portfolio consultants. And so uh, we're a team of 14 and uh, on our way to a team of 20 by the end of this calendar year to really help investors um, get the best of those different areas when it comes to portfolio strategy, research, and and uh, buyer's agency. So Arjun, um, from, from, a, from a data and research sort of thing, what sort of things are you, is your team looking at when you're looking at um, you know, uh, property acquisition for a, for a client? We've got from a from a data specific. We've got three core areas. Uh, one is our macro research, which is mainly fundamentals and um, going across core areas of you know people movement, economy, uh, demand, supply, sentiment, and we're trying to break down what really are those core drivers of property that influence it on a macro level. And then we take a deep dive into micro, and this is where we move from what we call influences to indicators. And indicators are just those things that. Every time markets go down, they show, and every time markets are going up, they show, and every time they're flat, they show. Uh, they never, there's never been an event in history where markets are all going up, but all the indicators are bad. Um, so that's one beautiful thing about the indicators. They don't lie. They, they come to a point of pressure, and whether it's high, low, uh, we can see that. And so that's using things like you know, throwing a bit of jargon, days on market, vendor discounting listings, sales volumes, online search interests, building approvals. These are just for some to name a few. And then the third and the, the key part where property differs from some other areas is the third part of research, which is boots on the ground. And this is where we get local, local understanding, field trips across the country, engaging local specialists, uh, getting a feel for the, the streets, the patches, the neighborhoods, uh, why some people live on certain parts of the area and why some people prefer other parts. So, that's the core three sort of pillars of our research that, you know, give us uh, great locations and and our performance. 
So what you're saying is don't go and buy an investment property because my mate, my mate's got one. Yeah, the mate <laughs> might tick. Uh, the mate might tick one of those uh, points. Maybe the underground because they they have some good things or things they can share about it. But um, there's two whole pillars you're missing out with the with the mate analogy. <laughs> good pickup. <laughs> So when people sort of say the liquidity um, side of things with uh, property, what, what what's your you know uh, point of view on you know, versus REITs or people investing through property through um, those structures opposed to direct uh, investment um, holdings? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think it's um, with liquidity and the sort of how that plays into your portfolio, I guess a big part of it is how active you'd like to be and how involved you'd like to be. Um, where the liquidity helps uh, is definitely how active you want to buy, sell, or look at different different opportunities as times arise. And I think that's where a whole bunch of uh, other vehicles probably provide a better opportunity than real estate investing. And then uh, when it comes to someone who'd like to be just you know less active and more of I've done the hard yards pre-purchase and I'll let time do its thing, is where liquidity doesn't you know, come up as a, much of a concern for that type of person. So I think it really depends on how active or less active you want to be. And then that's where you kind of weigh up the, the liquidity versus the leverage conversation that you have in real estate against other asset classes. Yep. And just to um, just for the uneducated, a, a RIT is a real estate investment trust. Anyone want to explain a bit more of that detail? No, it, it's effectively a fund um, investing in property Gareth, so um, it would be a whole bunch of people putting money together, like a managed fund or a or a unit trust uh, vehicle to invest in real estate. So yeah, versus buying. Say, say you've got a million dollars property, and you know, you as you're t- talking about liquidity, you you know, you can't sell pieces of it. No. Um, <laughs> you know, that'd be nice. You, you, could, you, you could try. <laughs> you could uh, try. But yeah, maybe, maybe to my mate or my parents or something. But um, yeah, but uh, the the point of a um, a writ. Uh, writ is that right? Writ or writ, writ, writ yeah. Uh, is, is, yeah, is to um, uh, you know break it up, right? You know, yep. Yeah, give yep. people options. Yeah. Does your organisation investigate? Do you focus primarily on residential property, or is it uh, do you do commercial as well? Or, or yeah, so our residential property is the main arm of the business. Probably represents sort of eight, eight out of every ten transactions. Uh, where the commercial comes in is we we tend to work on phases to build portfolios. So we have two types of you know journeys that we take clients on. One is we work on residentials to build our foundation of properties. And uh, this is also a great way to create a hedge as we go into commercial because we've got multiple stable residential rental income assets. Uh, easy to fill, easy to find tenants, easy to lend against, easy to get the right leverage. And um, you know comparable sales are, all over the place for us to be able to get a fair amount of good sample size to see how things are tracking. So that's kind of how we start most investors' portfolios. And then we get commercial uh, either within the SMSF vehicle or either um, within certain trusts and things, and it's focused on uh, a high income generation and the risks that come with it, they're okay to take because, you know, even if they didn't acquire that commercial property, that have enough residential properties compounding over time where they'd be okay. So it's kind of like a, I'll go into this because I'm now going to, I'm going to be okay either way, mm. but I'd like for it to work out and I'd like to get the best income out of it. And that's what we're aiming for. And so that's kind of the approach we take on how we look at commercial rather than just going everyone and anyone commercial is the greatest thing. We'll look after you for commercial. We, we'd rather have, you know, people build up a good solid hedge and foundation. Then we, then we add commercial to it. Nice. 
from from a rough idea of you know, number of clients, how many clients have got um, a property in their super fund um, from your experience, Arjun? So um, just over the last 12 months, we've made 217 purchases. Yep. And uh, of the 217 purchases, I'd say, you know, just under a third would have SMSS activity. And um, the rest of them would be uh, personal trusts, things like that. Uh, I find obviously SMSF purchases start to come up with those with more mature portfolios, uh, those who have that sort of two to three hundred k funds balance, um, which is what we commonly see, um, and then they start to consider some of these broader uh, real, real estate holdings um, because they do require that bigger deposits and in comparison to what you'd buy outside of SMSF. And uh, without giving away your uh, crown jewels. Uh, is there particular hotspots where those properties have been purchased? I mean, you know, feel free to just say states or countries or, you know. Uh. Countries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I think the, the interesting thing is if we break up the years, the last three years, uh, when we looked at firstly markets that we invested in, um, we actually did an exercise where we took purchases made over these years, did bank valuations, official ones, annualized them to where the valuation time period was not a perfect 12 months, and then uh, compared them against ABS for house price performance in Australia to kind of measure up some of the cities that we thought we'd back and uh, how those purchases have gone. Uh, between the last three years, depending on which year you take against ABS data, Australian house price performance, the locations that we picked ranged between 29 to 49% in outperformance. Um, and so when I think of that and I now unpack some of these locations, we had over 21 cities that we invested in across Australia, different time periods. What was unique about 2021, though, just the year that's been, was we had the most cities that were looking across the country to invest in just because how far and wide property markets were performing, especially with some of the markets across regional Australia and capital cities. They were just booming on all angles. So to name a few you have the likes of Bundaberg, Toowoomba, uh, the Gold Coast, Adelaide, Brisbane, Port Macquarie, Coffs Harbour, Wagga Wagga. The list goes on, but the main it thing is there like, are a lot um, of locations. People in Melbourne and Sydney who uh, who, who, who were under um, COVID restrictions. Yeah, it sounds like a, a, yeah, a sub, suburb sheet of uh, no lockdowns. Yeah, pretty much. I think that definitely aided a lot more flexibility in transaction. And uh, I think the people movement charts uh, show much the same as well. But um, that aside, I think, you know, 2018 was a year where, uh, you know, some of our standouts were Bendigo and Ballarat. They were the highest frequency of purchases during that year. And they outperformed uh, many of our cities between 18 to 20. And why I say that timeline in particular is very important to note this was pre-pandemic, so people can't just go, hey, that was the regional boom. That was people regionally moving over left, right, and center. Uh, no, we've always given regional markets their fair share, treat them as individual cities with individual fundamentals. And um, I think that's the key for investors to outperform moving ahead is have a greater number of cities under your belt to explore so you can make the decision that's you know, best for you and your portfolio at that time. Yeah, and um, from a, a time frame point of view, I mean, typically a self-managed super fund or super in general is a is a fairly long, long-term uh, play rather than a short-term sort of you know game. Uh, and so, do you differentiate with your 
um, investment properties from a, you know, if it's in a self-managed super fund, it may have a 20 year, you know, time frame, or if it's in a, you know, individual, it might be, or, or is it case by case kind of basis? That's actually a really good point you raise. And um, Thanks. it's very, very important <laughs> for, <laughs> not all good, my man, uh, but it's a, it's a very important point you raise because, you know, in the personal buying, uh, the criteria is all about our performance in the short term because investors are confident about real estate long term anyway. And so the short term is used as a way to go, let me leverage highly, use that leverage to then go across other properties and grow the portfolio so I have a huge compounding base versus just one asset, buy and hold and sit there long term. So that's the personal mindset. And SMSF, hey, you could get the greatest results in the first year from a residential property perspective, outperform short-term drivers, everything's great, but you can't go in there and start lending and start accessing equity and, and start, you know, ripping out that leverage and redoing it again. So I think that's really important to note because that means you don't need to go in for that short-term chase or think about those short-term metrics as much. You can just position assets from that long-term view and focus more on that rather than the immediate, you know, sort of opportunity cost point. Unless, of course, you're going to be in your, you know, age groups that need access to super or are looking to access super or sell off super assets or, or get that income sooner than a, say, 15 to 20 year number. But in most investors' case, if you're in your 30s and 40s and having a 20 year plus outlook, yeah, you've got to focus on the long term and that short term metrics don't mean as much in the super fund. Mm. Good answer to my good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> in terms of uh, like personal investment in property versus investment through a, like a super fund, um, what kind of role does inflation and like potentially rising interest rates play in that sort of investment? It plays a bigger role in the fund than it does on the personal front, just because how far and wide the margins are for investors. You know, investors uh, can still see interest rates with a three in front, even in today's rising rate environment, in their personal names. Uh, but this starts jumping into the fives and potentially even sixes in your self-managed super fund. So that cost margin for an asset that's obviously going to rental yield the same amounts, because the property in the property market doesn't care about how you're buying it, that can be huge for investors. And this could be the difference between your contribution going in to hold an asset versus your contribution each share going in to grow your funds so you can invest more. That's something that real estate investors don't take into account as much as they should. Um, because imagine uh, an investor who maintains a healthier cash flow or buys a more affordable property or puts a bigger deposit down with less debt on there or goes into alternate investments, um, you know, REITs or funds and managed funds and so forth. I think the key that people don't take into account is that if you're using most of your contributions now to simply just service that property, yes, you're going to have that compounding value of that property. That's, that's great. But your fund won't grow to enable further investments. And that can be a bit of a letdown and you maybe didn't look into your numbers more holistically. So it's actually a key point to mention that people need to really look deep into those fund cash flows when borrowing and find that sweet spot for them so they can have that combination of I can still hold the assets or I have less cash in and leveraged returns and 
long-term gains and eventually see a debt-free. But then I need to also make sure that my whole contributions aren't getting soaked in to just hold this asset up because, A, they're going to keep you on principal and interest. And, B, the higher interest rates are going to chew away at it. So it's a, it's a key point for investors to consider when buying property in SMSF. And if they don't, they could be sitting there with a great asset. They could be sitting there with less cash and power of leverage. But say goodbye to having multiple assets and multiple properties and diversifying within an SMSF as much as you could just because you're soaking in so much of your contributions into one place. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I suppose I was at the point where we bought our, our house and we still had our old house um, and you know the bank let us keep it. But from a personal point of view, the I did you know the stress test of if interest rates went back up to five or six, um, how much more pressure would that put on the family? And um, you know, we, we made the conscious decision that my wife wouldn't go back to work till our youngest was in school. So when you weigh it all up, I think that's that's a good part to forecast your own personal life, not just on that you know transactional period of time when you can afford it. Um, is like like Arjun saying, you you got to stress test it out, and I think that's a really good point for people to take in mind with real estate because you you are taking that long term view, but you don't want to you know, force one partner in the family to go back to work earlier just to fund uh, a property purchase that you made before kids and um, deal with the, the fallout personally between you and your partner over that, um, which uh, can happen because all of a sudden, you know, you just feel like you're working to fund a property that someone else is living in. So um, it's, hmm. it's a different... Do you, do you think that people do that kind of stress test often? Cause no. It, it, seems, it seems like... Yeah. Um, look, it's hard to see people actually look outside that far um, in the future. I know, you know, mortgage brokers are, are stress testing your, your funding capability to a certain extent when they're, you know, producing or when the bank gives you the loan. But I think people also forget the personal cost of uh, working uh, when you when you have personal circumstances change. And then, you know, I think a lot of potential separations that happen between couples happen on financial terms and um, it's just not having the discussion at the start. You know, um, I think I've said it previously in the podcast um, here is, you know, me and Jodie were very clear when, when uh, our fixed interest rate comes up, it happens to be the same time as our youngest is in school. And whatever that interest rate is, my wife's going back to it to make up that, that amount. <laughs> of, uh, in, interest per year divided number of yeah, hours yeah. per week. Is uh, this, this is your work commitment. <laughs> and, and that was the honest conversation we had. Now, whether that comes to fruition, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know in, in 12 months. But um that, that was the conversation. So we're doing a marriage counselling um, podcast in 12 months. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I feel like I've had the open conversation before we bought the expensive house, so I'm less likely to feel the pushback, hopefully, but we'll see. I think on, on the interest rates, it's a really interesting topic because um, I rarely read the newspaper and was just happened to be waiting for a coffee the other day and, and flicked through the newspaper and, you know, front page was, you know, some couple... Um, complaining about that they now can't afford to live in some glitzy suburb because the you know the interest rates are now one point one percent instead of you know point nine percent and the um, <clears throat> and now in the last you know six months interest rates have gone up one point five percent you know they're probably going up another one percent in the next six months. Arjun, what what's your sort of take on interest rates? Where do you see them going? You know maybe you know short term, long term. What's your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, this was actually. Um a hot topic at the moment. Interest yeah. rates obviously have been, I think, even more important than where they're going and how much it's costing. When we take a look at what our opinion is based on some of the reads we've made on housing fundamentals, we actually just recently, uh, this week actually, released uh, a white paper on Australia's housing fundamentals. And um, 
It was a very, very deep review. We did a review and found 25 core housing fundamentals that were across the categories of people movement, economic activity, finance, affordability, supply and confidence. And as a result, we were giving them rankings from very strong, strong, balanced, weak, and quite weak. And this was to get a really good holistic view of Australia's kind of position on uh, its overall housing fundamentals. So it's more holistic than kind of your fear-mongering articles or your bullish real estate local agent that just never seems to think anything's ever wrong with the market. Um, And so we wanted to look at it overall and Firstly, what we saw was that in the time of property booms, 22 of 25 fundamentals were strong or very strong. However, now that number comes down to about 18 of 25. So if you were to turn up to a test and get 18 to 25, you'd pass pass the test, right? So I think overall, we're still fairly uh, confident about Australia's position when it comes to housing fundamentals. But no doubt, these interest rates have been one of the weakening points amongst that change from 22 to 18. And what I think is more important is not so much the rise in the cost itself that's pinching households. It's actually the uncertainty of that the RBA's position and stance was initially, hey, as your guiders and as the controllers of this lever, we're here to tell you 2024, no interest rate rises until then. Mm-hmm. Well, that was, a, that was a load of crap. Um, and obviously that was not just one component, which is actually it going up earlier and that two years earlier. The second component is how many quick succession changes at how large paces there were. And so I think more important than the actual cost of money impacting families or changing things for people is actually the uncertainty of how far this goes, how, uh, who to believe, what to do when you don't have any clear sort of expert in your mind because the person or the persons controlling the lever are actually not believable in the first place. So I think um, the, the behavior change and impact of sentiment is actually more impactful than the cost of money itself because having been ex-CBA, we were, you know, we, we knew the numbers on the back end where A, people were being stress tested with 20% repayment loading. So if you existing repayments have a $1,000 per month repayment, we would treat that as 1200. Number two is if you had a 10 K credit card limit with the best customer of all time and never used to spend a cent or at least always paid it off. We used to assume that you're trying to pay a minimum repayment on a maxed out 10 K credit card. When you earned commissions and bonuses and were a top performer and you thought, Hey, things are going great. And you'd taken this great commissions. Every year you nailed it. Well, guess what? We were only taking 80% of it. And then when you were taking uh, interest rates of low loans and 2 and 3 and 4%, there were time periods when we were taking assessment rates of 7, 7.5, and even on the, the weaker terms, 5.5 to 6. So there's so much inbuilt. And look, that's not even the end of it. Like rental income, you were taking uh, $500 a week. Well, guess what? We were thinking it was $400 a week. So all these factors are there from a very prudent system in Australia. Hence why no matter how many fear-mongering articles come out, as of April 2022, our bank delinquency rates are at 0.7%. The share of non-performing loans in Australia has declined. It's been the lowest level since 2009. So I actually don't think the cost of money is the main concern for Australian households. It's the uncertainty, who do we believe, how quickly it changed, And that's what's driving down behaviors, vacuuming out the demand, 
in Australia right now for real estate and kind of making it a bit of a pause. So I think what we'll see is that until we get some stabilization in rates or or maybe an overshoot and a turnaround, I just don't think that households are just going to be confident. And that's understandable and, and believable considering the, the sudden changes there. Absolutely. Great, great uh, answer. It was really interesting you talk, talk, um, touching on the, the lending um, criteria from a um, obviously experience you've you've had because I think a lot of people who apply for their you know home loans don't necessarily understand how the bank sees them and how they analyze um, and I think there's a lot of education that can be um, <clears throat> given in terms of helping people understand how the bank analyzes their financial position before they go oh let's go buy that house and let's let's just apply for 10 different home loans and and have a crack and see if we get it you know i think if people actually understood how the the mass work and you know what they are reviewed it, it's it's easier to structure their own finances and positions um you know to suit what the banks you know effectively want right with that point you raise it just also should give a lot of households confidence, right? To go, I know it's kind of annoying that I feel like I'm on such a good income and I can't borrow that much, but hey, the flip side is moments like these aren't going to structurally impact people. They're just going to um, be a pain or be annoying rather than actually, you know, kill the balance sheets or incomes and, and of a lot of households. So I think there's the, the big fortunate part of the, the upside of all these bank rules and, and things as well. Sorry, Arjun, from a, from a from an assessment point of view of resi versus commercial, what sort of yields would you ballpark a residential property should return to someone after costs? Like are you, when you guys are looking at it, is it, is it, what sort of numbers are you looking? Yeah, so I think um, when it comes to rental yields and commercial residentials, the commercial game is just so much better. It, it's quite clear when you take into account that typically we're seeing that you know five to six point five net on commercial acquisitions. Um, and by net, that's after all bills, but before mortgage. Yeah. Whereas in the residential space, like even a, a healthy five hundred thousand dollar property, like if you're getting a you know four point five percent gross yield in a regional location, you take away property management, um, you take away you know council rates, and even a cheaper location, um, take away maintenance take away water and the list goes on, right? Of even a couple of weeks of vacancy, you take away that. Um, all of a sudden you're left with uh, a, a gross yield of, I'm um, just doing my maths here, 3.2% yeah. uh, uh, net yield yeah. from your 4.5 gross. So that sort of 1% one, 1 you remove off a residential can be a great quick back of the napkin calculation when you take away rates, water, property management, maintenance, and vacancy. And uh, that's where the commercial and residential differs by at least a two to three net variance in income. Has there been any change in commercial with um, like greater working from home after the pandemic? Yeah, I think one thing to notice on the commercial part, uh, actually two parts. So number one is on the, the work from home uh there is a sense of belief that immediately office, offices are just, you know, ghost towns. Um, there is a case of that in some CBD locations, as not many cities, other than say like your Adelaide, have returned to a lot of pre-COVID occupancy. Um, with regards to you know offices and the whole work from home movement, what's actually been a bit of a green shoot has been 
suburban offices. We've seen a lot of businesses start to go, hey, what if I could have that hybrid balance of, you know, having a, a place to go to in the burbs where me and a few team members are based and at the same time have cheaper rates of purchase dollar per square meter and, and get bigger space and still have that communability from home, work from home some days, go to the office. I think that's obviously been something that's uh, picked up a little bit more. But overall, your you know retail and some of your offices now have kind of switched where the commercial cap rates back in the day for industrial used to be the favorite. We'd, we'd be getting yields of six and a half to seven and a half. And that was extremely popular from an investing point of view. That popularity's picked up so much that those cap rates have gone right down to five to six point five for what we would purchase two years ago at seven net. So I think the assets of popularity are definitely more across that logistics industry and you know, that's kind of where the cap rates have changed. And now I think what's what's clearly being seen is, you know, cap rates across offices and retail look a little bit more attractive. I'm still saying there's a lot of due diligence to be done in that space because businesses are actively considering other things and, you know, adapting to the time and not everyone who's a business owner could just pack up at 2020 and just change what they wanted to from these last two years of COVID. Uh, some, some would have had leases start in 2019 for five years and they have to stick it out up until that change comes and they're probably ch- planning their change and the next three or four years might start to see some of that change in, you know, get even stronger. So I don't think this whole work from home was this fad and it only happened once and the lockdown's over and everyone's getting back to normal. Everyone comes back to normal. No, I think it's a structural change to stay here with us. And it's just going to be the adaption rate that will, you know, slow down from peak levels and eventually reach a new level that is a new norm. And that new norm will sit much higher than levels pre-COVID because it is a positive uh, impact for many people's lives and businesses as well as, as well as customers. So that's kind of our thoughts. So there's been a bit of a switch in cap rates of you know, commercial ends with industrial assets starting to become very, very desired. Very good. Arjun, we were, uh, we're here today, I think it's the 10th, 10th of August. Um, RBA rate is, was it 1.85% is it currently? <laughs> Look around the room. <laughs> Uh, let me better. just consult the yeah. Google. Uh. <laughs> I feel like, Alban- feel like Albanese. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> better, um. cut, better cut that out. <laughs> so to, to your point earlier about low, cu- currently we have very low uh, mortgage delinquency rates. Um, you know, in the next couple of months, I feel like there's going to be a lot of mortgages that will roll off, you know, their fixed, fixed term and, you know, experience quite a significant jump in, you know, the probably the 2%, you know, or 2.5% they may have been paying. You know, I think it's up around sort of 4 to 5% now for like a, you know, a three-year fixed term. So do you think that we may see, you know, the market cool for a little bit simply because, you know, like I, I worked it out the other day, it was something like, if you have a if you have a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar mortgage and you know you're essentially coming off say what was the fixed rate to the new fixed rate it 2%. equates yeah it equates to about I think it was about sixteen or seventeen hundred dollars a month more um, than what you were paying 
previously. So that's that's obviously very significant. It's probably double the repayment. Yeah. So, it's so a lot of smashed abs on poached eggs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, for, so for someone, I mean, three fifty k is a fairly modest mortgage. Um, you know, to to then have to pay sixteen hundred dollars a month more, like that's that's significant. I, I I mean, I don't know who would have that spare, right? So, do you think that we may see a bit more pain in the in the near term based on that alone? Yeah, it's a good analysis. I think it's clear that we need to all come to an agreement on one part, which is demand cannot operate at the same level sustainably moving forward to what they had in recent years. And the reason for that is there was 22 of 25 fundamentals in a very strong position. And so as a result, all the money in the economy, all the reduced supply, all the lack of money going out to other places, cheap money, all these different things that came into the mix were supercharging price prices to a whole new level. And we've got to expect cool off. Like we just can't operate at, you know, an asset class that produces between five and 8% per annum long-term averages should not and cannot operate at 20% per annum plus every year. Mm. History has shown us that this is a very rare time. Like what we've seen now, the last time it occurred nationwide was between 2000 and 2005, 20 years. For some people, that's the rest of their investing life if you're 40. For some people, that's two-thirds of your investing life if you're starting to get a decent job and get into investing in your third. So the key here is that we've got to agree that things will cool off irrespective of rates changes and with rates even more so. The second thing is to understand the households of impact. Interest rates rising will definitely, and anyone, any sales agent you hear saying it's not going to make an impact to anyone, I call bull. Like there is always going to be a group of people that will be impacted with any change in housing markets. Now, it's important to rationalize the group of people. You know, I would say last 12 months was one of our biggest years from transaction volumes because of the sheer heat and boom. We would have transacted anywhere between 500 and 600,000 homes, properties in Australia. That's the Australian market overall. But if I'm correct, the number of dwellings in Australia is over 10 million. So there is going to be a 500,000 odd segment of people who transacted in the last 12 months against the 10.6 million dwellings those 500,000 people would A, have been at the lowest cycle in Australia's history of interest rates and have seen the sharpest change in terms of percentage of gains that any of us have probably seen in our lifetimes. So that that particular group feels pinch and change because they weren't expecting it. They bought at the lowest possible time of interest rates and they've seen that change. But guess what? There's another part to it. They've also seeing upwards of 20% in capital growth <laughs> over the last 12 months too. Now, yes, there's going to be people who bought in the last three months, two months, one month, six months, but that now cuts that 500,000 down to 50,000. So really, is there going to be impact? Yes, but the number of groups that this is contained to, it's fairly limited because if we now move that dial back from one year to two years, 
that 500,000 becomes a million transactions. That's now a much better sample size, 10% of households. That million would have seen between 30 to 50% in gains over two years. So their deleveraging itself is so big. Yes, deleveraging doesn't mean their repayments have changed, but deleveraging means that in the event that they needed to sell, I don't think the delinquency rates are going to climb up rapidly to a low percentage of affected homes and also homes with 30 to 50% in gains that could possibly sell it for 5% weaker because the market's lower and still come out okay. Maybe 10% weaker. Anything beyond 10, 15% weaker, we're already in the biggest... Uh, declines of Australian history. And even then, they're probably still ahead. So um, I think what we need to look at is to go, yes, there will always be affected households. Yes, there will be cooler markets. It's unsustainable for 20% plus gains to happen on an asset class that's 5 to 8% long-term averages. And yes, buyer behavior is going to act uncertain because of the things that we've just talked about earlier with interest rates changing. But to say 10.6 million residential dwellings that are only going to have 500,000 to 10, you know, 1 million max people who bought in the lowest of history of interest rate have seen a change is suddenly going to topple everything or impact too many people. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And if it does impact many people, we're going to see data on a quarterly update on our macro conditions in Australia. And like I assume they will, I think we're going to overshoot because we're going to play the inflation capping off game and follow the rest of the globe and, you know, be using quarterly lag data and then we're going to pull back. It's just going to be a tool used to say, hey, we're doing really great and, hey, we're not doing so great, reduce. And so I think um, there's always going to be a small segment of impacted households, but to see it being catastrophic when you break it down to dwellings versus purchases versus gains versus cash and offsets and balances, I think there's going to be a lot of people who'll be fine. So, Arjun, thanks very much. Uh, very insightful um, podcast today. Uh, if uh, anyone uh, does want to sort of get in touch with you or, you know, pay for your services <laughs> uh, rather than listening to the podcast uh, 10 times over, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Should they contact us or, you know, visit your website? Mate, the best way would be uh, investikit.com.au. And uh, if you found some of the insights here of value, I think the the best thing to check out on their website would be our property market research tab. And uh, we've got that latest white paper I was referring to, which is Australia's housing fundamentals. And you can also use that website to request a free consultation to chat with our team to help you start or scale your investing portfolio. Excellent. And just remind us, um, I think you have your own podcast as well. If, if um, people go Googling on their um, uh, Spotify, what, what, what should they look for? Yeah, that's the Property Nerds podcast. And uh, as the name suggests, um, it's me doing a lot of what I love doing, which is nerding out, chat and research data and numbers. And um, it will bore, bore a lot of people, but I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that um, that get excited about it too. <laughs> and, and make sure you look at the SMSF Mate podcast first and Arjun second. <laughs> so, so we can get Arjun back, uh, back again. So uh, I think, yeah, excellent. Thank you very much. Cheers, Arjun. Awesome all. Catch up soon. Thank you for joining us once again. If you're interested in our waffle about self-managed super funds, feel free to join us on smsfmate.com.au or search SMSFMate in Spotify.